Good morning. So this morning, I'm going to talk about something called Dharma position, which is something I've never talked about on a Sunday morning before. And there's a reason for that. It's really hard to understand and hard to explain. And uh, for, for me, it's, it's taken me a long time to get to this point. Dharma position is not something that's been really uh, intuitive for me for a long time. Sometimes things are intuitive, like the five uh, skandhas, form, feeling, perception, formation, consciousness. Uh, I read about the five skandhas. I learned about it first couple of times. Didn't really make much sense to me. And then one day I made the connection. Um, uh, I saw something and I saw its vivid presence before I gave a word to it. And then I gave a word to it uh, and then uh, had a feeling about it. And then things started to arise in my mind, um, you know, mental construction. So I got, okay, five skandhas, that corresponds with something that happens in my meditation. Uh, but it's taken a long time for um, the idea of Dharma position to be like that uh, for me. Um, but um, we've been uh, discussing it quite a lot, and I've been reading about it in morning study group, which I'm facilitating right now, and uh, that helps. And each time I think about it, my understanding uh, deepens a little. So I'm ready to give it a try, see if we can talk about it this morning. Uh, and if there are parts that don't make sense, uh, and that may very well happen because Zen doesn't really make sense, uh, don't worry about it too much. Uh, I will do my best to uh, relate it by the end to daily life and to our uh, practice. So what is Dharma position? Uh, well, first, uh, a little bit of background. Uh, in morning study group, we've been reading uh, the Mountains and Waters Sutra by Dogen, also known as the Sansuikyo. And uh, Dogen, uh, for those of you who don't uh, know, uh, is the most, uh, I would say, prominent figure in the history of Japanese Soto Zen. He was born in the year 1200, and he had one of those minds that I can never hope to fathom. I don't know who to compare him to, maybe Einstein. Um, and uh, people have been studying him for centuries, and I really rely on their commentaries a lot. <clears throat> but Dogen is uh, truly wonderful, and I'm really enjoying our morning study group. <clears throat> and the book we're using is The Mountains and Waters Sutra, A Practitioner's Guide to Dogen's Sansuikyo by Shohaku Okamura, who many of you know. He speaks here now and then. He was the guiding teacher, interim guiding teacher here, uh, for, I think, four years uh, in the mid-1990s, and he's really wonderful. So uh, I'm going to refer just to the first two lines of the San, San Suikyo, which is maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 pages long. First line, these mountains and waters of the present are the expression of the old Buddhas. These mountains and waters of the present are the expression of the old Buddhas. So this is about time in part. 
Things of the present are the expression of old things. And uh, Dogen wrote a lot about time in Uji, uh, also uh, known as being time. Uh, he wrote extensively uh, about it. And in Dogen's view, as Okamura says in this book, each and every time is entire time. So all time is contained in each uh, moment. Uh, and I won't go into this really extensively, uh, but I'll say that linear time uh, is an illusion in a sense. And uh, we can uh, see that when we set aside our limited and self-centered views. Linear time is something we've constructed with our mind. It's not something that really uh, exists objectively. So, um, but it's where we dwell. It's where we dwell, this idea of linear time. And that is our starting point. We start with our illusory view of linear time in order to see beyond our illusory view to time which is not uh, linear. So the second line is, each abiding in its own dharma state fulfills exhaustive virtues. So each, meaning each mountain, each water, each thing, each abiding in its own dharma state fulfills exhaustive virtues. So this introduces the idea of dharma state, which is also often translated as dharma position, and that's the phrase I will use. Uh, so each thing in this world abides in a dharma position. And there is something virtuous, something good about that. And Dogen's best explanation of dharma position that I know of is in another work uh, called the Genjo Koan, which we have studied here many times. Uh, he says in the Genjo Koan, firewood becomes ash, ash cannot become firewood again. And that's kind of the famous explanation of Dharma position. Firewood becomes ash, ash cannot become firewood again. And this really threw me off when I first studied it. Uh, I thought, I can't really, I cannot really understand why Dogen seems to be uh, emphasizing the great separateness between firewood and ash. This is what I was thinking at that time. If all time is contained in every moment, why wouldn't you say, you know, firewood and ash are the same? Why is he emphasizing that, uh, that they're different? Um, well, in a sense, um, it is true that the firewood is still there in the ash, but there's more to it than that. And I'll just read the remainder of, of, uh, this paragraph from the Genjo Koan, which is, which is pretty dense, but bear with me. Um, well, I'll start at the beginning. Firewood becomes ash. Ash cannot become firewood again. However, we should not view ash as after and firewood as before. We should know that firewood dwells in the Dharma position of firewood and has its own before and after. Although before and after exist, past and future are cut off. Ash stays in the position of ash with its own before and after. As firewood never becomes firewood again after it has burned to ash, there is no return to living after a person dies. 
However, in Buddha Dharma, it is an unchanged tradition not to say that life becomes death. So seems to be two opposite things going on there at the same time. Um, things uh, things uh, come before or after one another, and also they don't. Um, but what Dharma position means is that things exist at a moment in time and are 100% what they are at that moment. Firewood is firewood, ash is ash. They are not transitional states between other things. Firewood is not future ash. Ash is not past firewood. And Reverend Okamura uses examples. A baby is 100% a baby. It is not a future child. We can't define it now by what it's going to be later. It just is what it is now. Spring does not become summer. Uh, in, uh, in English, we, do, we say that. Spring does not become summer. But he points out that in the Japanese language, they don't say that. Spring does not become summer. Spring is spring. Summer is summer. So we could say, in a sense, there is no before and after. This moment is a complete, perfect time with nothing lacking. We're not on our way to something else right now. We're not continuing something that happened in the past. We are here. We are just here. And this is not just semantic. I think this goes to uh, the heart of our practice. And it's consistent with another rather difficult idea, which is interdependent origination, which is the idea that everything arises all at once together each moment. Each moment is brand new. Each moment, everything in the universe arises all together. But of course, this being Zen, that's only part of the story. And there's a great paradox here. Uh, and I wasn't quite accurate when I said there is no before and after. I said that for emphasis. Dogen says, we should know that firewood dwells in the Dharma position of firewood and has its own before and after. Although before and after exist, past and future are cut off. So there is a past and future, but they are cut off. What does that mean? Well, there's a sense in which time is linear, there is firewood, and then there is ash. Time is flowing. Something happens, something else happens, dependent upon that, etc. Now, this is the hard bit, as if we haven't been there already. <laughs> uh, in this single present moment, all past and future is reflected. This moment is entirely itself 100%. It is not a transitional state, depending on other moments, and yet it reflects all the other moments. This moment is entirely itself, and yet it is what it is because of other moments. So how can we possibly hope to get this uh, intuitively? Uh, well, I would like to talk about how this idea of Dharma position can be consistent with what happens in Zazen. 
And in the beginning of our Zazen, uh, when we come to intro and we're instructed, we may begin by counting our breaths. That's how I started when I first went to an intro at a Zen center. And they, uh, I was instructed to count my breaths uh, using uh, five words in Korean, Hana, Tool, Set, Net, Tasut. I thought those must be really mystical words, and I later found out they mean one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> and, uh, and I would do this. I would, I would uh, count my breaths. Um, if you get to three and a thought comes in, you don't keep going to five, you go back to one, you start over. And I did that uh, a, for a, a long, long time, and I still occasionally do it. And it's great for calming the mind. But it's interesting because past and future are part of it. If I'm at two, I'm aware that there was a one, I'm aware that there's a potentially a three, four, five that may come that I'm going to start over. So I really am kind of being aware of linear time in my zazen, which is fine. We really need that to kind of quiet our mind. Um, but in shikantaza, which is another kind of meditation that we can do, uh, there's no breath counting. And it's about bare awareness. It's about awareness of the interdependent uh, co-origination that occurs each moment. Each moment is really brand new. So it doesn't let past and future in. Now this morning, if you were here for the meditation, you know that there's uh, uh, some kind of a run going on outside, uh, which is pretty cool. And um, we could hear a little noise and some dear, very enthusiastic person was ringing a bell every time somebody came by, a really loud bell. And what perfect conditions for Zazen. I mean, besides being nicely connected to our sweet community here, uh, we have this challenge of dealing with this bell because when the bell rings, we can think, oh, I had this thing going in Zazen. Now I've got this interruption. Now I have to get back to this thing I had going in Zazen. Well, that's linear time, but no, no. When you hear the bell, your meditation is 100% that bell. That's what it is. There's nothing for you to go back to. The world is going to arise anew again. So after the bell has rung, then what is it now? And we completely let that in. And if we're ready, if we don't bring the residue along, the bell's not even going to bother us. So I do shikantaza with no past and present. Shikantaza, by definition, does not let past or present in. It is just this moment. And yet I'm able to do shikantaza because I spent all of that time in the past counting my breaths and calming my mind. That made this moment of shikantaza possible. But there's no way I can think about that during shikantaza. The future is reflected too because I'm fully in this moment with no thought of the future, but the future will be affected. My sitting in this way is going to change me and that will change others around me. I will be different this afternoon because I did that sitting, probably for the better. And so we've got to let it all go in the moment to be present with what interdependently originates in the moment. 
and yet past and future affect this moment and are affected by it. Although before and after exist, past and future are cut off. And there's something I like to say to myself uh, using the word because, which really makes no sense, but it really feels right. Because this moment is completely itself, it can function in relation to other moments. Because ash cannot become firewood, it can flow in time with firewood. Because I can let go of past and future in meditation, I can let past and future be what they are. And I think I like that because word, not so much because of cause and effect, but because it kind of says that everything's okay, you know, because of form emptiness, because of emptiness form, what is not better, they have to both be there. And that is just as it should be. And we really can't go wrong. And that is the wondrous Dharma. And there's a quote on the uh, front of your program uh, that uses that phrase, wondrous dharma, it is as it should be. So again, back to the second line of the uh, Sansuikyo, each abiding in its own dharma state fulfills exhaustive virtues. So to be here completely is a virtuous thing a good thing, a compassionate thing, a thing that helps others. And I'll just read a little short paragraph here from Reverend Okamura from this book on page 68. If we think that what we are doing right now has the purpose of becoming Buddha, that is ordinary, ordinary goal-oriented thinking. But if we think in Dogen's way, if we see this moment as including the entire stream, then each step of our practice is the entirety of the Buddha way. If we practice sincerely, mindfully, and wholeheartedly, Buddhahood is already here in what we are doing right now, even though we have not yet crossed over to the other shore. So this is profound. The one thing that I'm doing now is all of it. This moment is not lacking. It cannot be lacking. It cannot be something I'm doing on my way to something else. I'm not practicing to get better. This is perfect. If this is your first day here, and uh, this is the beginning of your Zazen practice, you are doing perfect Zazen practice. If you've been doing this practice for 40 years, you're doing perfect Zazen practice. We're not practicing to get better. Practice and enlightenment are the same. So we just see that and we enter the stream of time, which is not really a stream. It's this moment right now. This moment right now. This moment. This moment a series of independent moments. And so my title for this talk is Dharma Position in Daily Life. So I'd like to make the point uh, that I believe this idea of Dharma position applies in our daily life. It applies in meditation. It applies in ritual. It can apply in each thing that we do. And it's about doing one thing at a time 
and doing it completely. And I would like to give uh, an example from, from uh, my life about how I do my work. Um, so as some of you know, I um, spent uh, 25 years working for a legal uh, publishing firm while also being active here. And my job um, was to analyze opinions that had been written by judges. And uh, I would pull out the separate legal points that they made in these opinions and I would write them up. And then those would be cataloged and that would help lawyers do their research. So I needed to read these opinions. I read thousands of these opinions and I would write them up. Uh, and I had a quota. Uh, and my salary depended on how much, uh, how many I got done. Just an interesting side note, I would review other people's work and a lot of people put their desire to do a really good job above their own uh, uh, desire to get a better salary. <laughs> people really had a lot of integrity, I thought. Uh, but you would keep the quota in mind. And there were really two ways to do this. And the one way to do it that didn't work very well is I would keep the quota in mind. And because I had a quota, I knew I had to kind of hurry. Okay, I've got a case, it's four pages long. I will give it 30 minutes. I don't have the luxury of reading the whole case, digesting it, thinking about it, and then pulling out the legal points. I've got to kind of zip through it. I will read the facts quickly. I'll pull out one point, pull out another one, um, and just keep moving along. And that never worked very well because I would skip over things and then I would find I had to go back and I had to reread something because I had uh, missed something. Uh, so um, it would take a little longer than I expected. And it was really frustrating. There was something really kind of exhausting about doing it in that way, about trying, trying to uh, push myself in that way. Uh, but I, I did that a lot. And sometimes there was no, uh, no choice. But the other way of doing it was to take my time, do one thing at a time, get the case, read the case, not think about how one part of the case might be more valuable than the other, but just read it through, make sure I understood a line before I moved on to the next line and go through it deliberately in that way. And it was really very different. And I found I did not get exhausted when I did it that way because I wasn't always like doing violence to my own mind by rushing forward and going back and rushing forward and going back. I could be there fully uh, with, with each thing. And I definitely did better work when I did that. And the surprising thing was I probably ended up getting as much or more done using that approach uh, because I didn't get so exhausted and I would keep at it and I was, I was engaged in it. Uh, so that second way of doing things uh, was something I tried to do uh, whenever, whenever I could. I tried to bring some energy to it. I tried to remind myself of that deliberate approach. Uh, when I went to lunch, I would eat, I would uh, get a salad and I would eat it so slowly and carefully and mindfully, and that would help to bring me back on my good days. On my bad days, I'm eating my salad and writing my head notes, and they're not so good. <clears throat> and this still applies, uh, you know, it applies when I go through my emails. I get a lot of emails. If you've ever gotten an email uh, from me and it was a little brusque and you read it and you go, boy, he's kind of business-like today. Uh, that's because I was allowing past and future to come in while I was writing 
uh, that email. So you could say, maybe this is a little simplistic, but you could say that letting each uh, email or each paragraph of the legal opinion dwell in its own Dharma position so that I have no thought about the next thing I have to do allows me to do really good work and affects the future positively. By cutting off past and future, I am caring for past and future. <clears throat> and um, just one more thing. Um, this relates back to, I would like to relate this back to a talk I gave on a Tuesday night here on August 15th, which I called, uh, What is the Best Use of a Human Life? And in that talk, I talked about how practice helps us to eliminate uh, the extra stuff in our life, in our mind. Because we're able to see things clearly, we can stop dwelling so much on extra stuff like regret or wishing things were otherwise when we know they can't be changed or our failure to accept impermanence. Practice helps us to eliminate what's extra, see things clearly, see and accept what we can't change and see and accept all of our power and our strength and rise above doubt because it just is what it is. And we're going to deal with it. Pretty simple, but pretty hard to get there because our minds are so full all the time. But we do all of that and then we can act uh, compassionately. And that's all there is. And if we can do that, we're abiding in our Dharma state and this uh, fulfills exhaustive virtues. So we'll keep at it doing that. And that's what I have to say this morning and would be happy to hear from some of you. Would anyone like to say something to the group? Whitney. Can you draw a distinction for us between dependent origination and interdependent origination? I've heard both terms used in different contexts. You know, I'm not sure I can. <laughs> I don't think I know. You know, I did come across that in preparing for this talk, and I thought I should figure that out, and I didn't. Does anybody, <laughs> does anybody know? I think they're just two different messages from what I've seen. Okay, did you hear that online? That was Rosemary saying, I think it's just two different usages from what I've seen. So, yeah, I guess dependent and interdependent aren't, aren't really different. I don't know if it's uh, an error on people's end or if it's a, I don't know what it's been. Yeah, okay. Probably just an alternative way of saying it. I, Roger. I think they're the same thing. Mm -hmm. I, I have a PhD in English, if that helps. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. There we go. <laughs> yeah. And there's what? There's uh, yeah, dependent origination. Sometimes you hear codependent origination, but I think maybe that's not correct. <laughs> and brings up other things. Yeah. Okay. Yes, John. Uh, I was picturing a rock and a stream. So the rock is being influenced by the water coming towards it. So that's the future. But the 
rock is just abiding in its rockness. Mm-hmm. And after the water flows over, part of that rock has been worn away and it's, it's now downstream. But, and the water levels change and so it's being tossed and turned, but it's always abiding in its rockness. I don't know if that's kind yeah. of the way to view. It's abiding in its rockness. It's been changed a little bit by the stream, but it's still abiding in its rockness, which is not the same rockness it had a moment ago. Yeah. Yeah, very good. That works. Jenny. Thank you for the talk this morning, Ted. I, I, um, I find this message really kind of comforting. I think the first time I heard about Dharma position was a number of, a couple of years ago on a Tuesday night talk. And I remember it kind of coming up and I remember saying something like, okay, what's the point of that? What is it? What, what's that for? Um, and the way you talked about it this morning reminds me of, um, uh, there's something there around, uh, valuing each well, I'm thinking about people valuing each person that you encounter, like as they are right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me a little bit of, of what I've heard Ben talk about in, um, you know, uh, in, in being with talking to counseling people who are going through a lot of stuff, maybe they have addiction, um, and just being able to be with them right now not some future sober version of them, but just Hmm. valuing who they are right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find that really compelling. And I wish I were better at it. I find find it, I've I've been trying to work on on being able to do that with the people in my life. Certain family members come to mind and uh, it's it's difficult, Mm -hmm. but I can see that if you're able to do that, it's very, uh, it's very healing. I think. I mean, when I've been, when I've been the recipient of that kind of, just like I'm here with you right now, and however you are right now is who you are right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really healing. So okay. this seems related to that to me. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a very good example. And so, do you do you remind yourself when you're talking to someone to just kind of let them be? Or? I try to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's also related to me to like understanding that my job here is not to try to control or manipulate this person into being some other thing. Yeah. I want them to be. Right. Right. It's hard though. Yeah. Yeah. But ironically, letting go of that desire to change them can possibly set the stage for change. Yeah, that's another good example. Yes, Cole. Um, one thing I, I find is that plan, planning can set the stage for both worlds to manifest, to honor the past and the future, and then also go into just the moment. So if you plan out what you need to do, you're kind of keep, you can keep track of what needs to be accomplished in the linear time, but then once when you have that going, then you can go into 
just what you're doing right in front of you. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of at some point popping out of that and going back into the checking and see if you're going along with that. And then you're still kind of on that timeline going back into just what's right in front of you. I find it's kind of like you kind of weave in and out both worlds that way. So if you have, so if you're not keeping track of that linear time, I think for me at least, like my mind's always going to be trying to keep track of it. It knows I don't have a good sense of what, what needs to happen. So then it's always doing that. I'm like, oh, I just need to focus on what's here. But there's a part of my mind that knows that I'm not keeping track of the linear standpoint where we mostly live. So uh, I find it's good to plan out what needs to happen and then go into it, execute it, and then, and then kind of come back out and then check it again and go back into just what's right in front of you into the sort of uh, it's just right here you're just doing it and uh one expression that i've heard is uh kind of to keep things flowing too is that a plan is useless but planning is invaluable Hmm. Hmm. yeah yeah i think i think i i get what you're you're saying, um, to rephrase it a little bit, um, if I make a plan, I am thinking about the future. But that really frees me to not think about the future when I'm executing those parts of the plan. Yes. Yeah. A little bit like at a retreat, someone has planned the schedule very carefully, but because they have done that, I can really let go of that and I can just listen for the han and listen for the bells. I don't have to think about the next activity at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's a. It's very interesting, you know. Like right when we sat down, I was looking out the windows are open, everyone's yelling, got the bell, and like stuff like that always makes me so happy. <laughs> it comes down to like how much, like how much am I going to try to control this world, right? Right. Like it says in the reading, like we cannot grasp it by thinking, so we try not to grasp. We open our hand and trust everything in this moment. If I'm sitting by a waterfall and I hear that water roaring, I'm not thinking, man, I wish that waterfall would shut off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> why why is it any different than that guy swimming over the bell? Because it's life. Yeah. You know, like there's like it's, it's such an interesting process, like, to go through, like, thinking like that while trying to meditate when I get shocked because I hear a loud bell all of a sudden and I have to go back into my meditation and be okay with it because it's like realizing that, like, I can't control this. When I try to control it is when I take away from the moment of actually living and being in that moment. And it's just, it's such a, such a bizarre concept when you like you know it's like if we all sat in a room that was the quietest room in the world which is actually in minneapolis um you you wouldn't be able to last for 15 minutes <laughs> mm-hmm. all the sounds that are produced from your own body you can hear your own body produce what it does like right and it's like i don't realize how much sound i produce by just sitting here wild like it's like it's like the yin and yang of life, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm sitting here dead quiet, but if I was really in a dead quiet room, I would really hear sound produced by me being dead quiet. 
No, that's, that's, it's, yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, so much of that stuff that gets in the way is about control, I think. Thinking we can, you know, control what happens during Zazen, control, control things. I'm just, oh, I'm just looking in this talk, I loved your talk, Ken, because I can, I said this usually in times, you bring this to my daily life all the time. And I like your process of, I got a zillion things to do. I'm in grad school now. I'm doing this. I'm taking this class here, taking your class, taking my class. I'm like, oh, well, if I just concentrate on what I'm doing right now, things get done. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's amazing. I love that. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of what Cole said. It's like, a plan is useless. To me, that means expectations. Mm-hmm. My expectations. Wow, yes, I know that for me that's true because those get shattered so many times and I get resentful and blah, blah, blah. So, yes, I love that thought that planning is valuable. I'm seeing what that would be. So, thanks. This has been great. <laughs> thanks, Carl. Yes. Uh, thank you for the talk. It made me think of a book that I read by a writer named Russo Zeki, and the book was called The Tale for the Time Being, which I, when I first read the title, I was thinking a tale for you know, the time being just for now, but one of the characters refers to herself as a time being, like a being in time. And I thought that was kind of a powerful way of thinking of yourself as an entity who is existing within a given moment that you know may not be true of the past or the future, moving along but in, in time. Um, but uh, I've also been like weirdly thinking kind of retrospectively about uh, about life even just in the last few days because I found some digital archive of photos of myself from you know 2008 through 13 or something like that time period when I was you know just leaving college just in college and just after college and I'm thinking about the discontinuity between the way I think of myself in this moment and the self that I see in those pictures, there's all these surface differences of you know hair and clothing and you know where I was where I was living geographically. But um, I, I, in hearing your talk, actually, it was I, again like like Jenny said, like I feel a kind of comfort with that discontinuity that there was a version of myself that existed in that moment. And there is also a version of myself that exists in this moment. Um, and they're both, you know, they're both the rock industry and they're both, you know, wood. Um, and I'm comfortable that the, the time that has acted upon me in the interval between when those photos were taken and, and now, yes, did, you know, produce me, but it's okay that that is kind of a separate being, you know, that, that is almost a separate time being. Yeah, thank you. I wonder if there's something in there about regret. I, I, when, when I, again, like when I think retrospectively, I, regret doesn't arise, you know, I don't, I don't rue any moments, and I feel like that's just a, you know, a quality of my emotional state that I, yeah. that I, I'm, I'm thankful for. Yeah, but, um, yeah, um, I'm sorry to interrupt, but let me explain. I, yeah, I wasn't, didn't mean to suggest that um, you were experiencing regret. 
But I wonder if there's something in what you said about this kind of attitude to the past that could apply to, uh, to regret that we are entirely what we are now. Uh, we're not part of that regrettable past. And yet something about that past, you know, made us what we are today. Yes. And is there a way to kind of find, uh, find peace there? That's what I was thinking. Uh, I, I find myself trying to act in that manner in my own zazen, in that I, you know, I can, I feel it most rewarding when I am in full shikantaza mode that I, that I am in the moment that I'm sitting here on this cushion and what's happening in the cushion is really all that I'm, is inhabiting me. But I also think it's interesting that <laughs> the moments that I like perhaps unfairly think of as unsuccessful zazen are the ones that I, where I have been, you know, sort of steeped in these thoughts that are arising. But I find it interesting that I, I never recognize the point of departure. I never recognize the point when that thought arises and then I veer off in some other direction. I only recognize the moment when I return to the cushion, hmm. you know? Um, that's when I find that I, I, I land back in time as I see it most comfortably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I can't see the point of departure from that past self to now. Yeah. I'm only seeing it from when I return to the moments, which is right now looking back at those images of myself. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you. Uh, yes, Alejandro. Um, thanks, Ted. Always very inspirational. To me, it's a very simple, eloquent, and elegant way to define mindfulness. Um, something that I practice a lot in my work as a therapist the here and now. And to me, it's really right on, on the money about that. And that's what it means to me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes. Um, one way of thinking about time that I didn't hear you talk about is circular time, which to me seems to be connected with nature. Like we have day and night, and that cycle repeats. We have lunar cycle, we have seasonal cycle. So there's sort of a circular sense of time as well. And when I think about time in all of these different aspects, Sometimes time seems like a wheel where the outside edge is spinning really fast and that's kind of linear time. Mm -hmm. And you go in a little and you get circular time, which repeats. And then you go to the still point of the center and it's just this, the mm. Dharma position. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yes, Leo. Time is a very perplexing thing to understand. I, I've always thought time was invented, so everything didn't happen at once. <laughs> so uh, there's a movie I, I saw a few years back called The Arrival, and I saw that uh, it's been online a lot lately, and they're talking about some of the top movies on Netflix. And, and the premise of the movie where these 12 alien pods come to Earth, and they come in peace, and we're trying to communicate with them. So they send this woman, can't remember her name, but she's a, a world-renowned linguist, uh, and she's trying to communicate with these with these uh, aliens, and 
They start talking all the reviews about this linear time, which we experience, but the aliens don't, don't have that linear time. They're on a completely different system that they believe in. So it's a very confusing movie, like your talk today. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm going to go on today, maybe rewatch it, and you see total enlightenment. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyone online? Um, yes, Gina. Hi, good morning, everyone. It's been a while. Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah. <laughs> I think that sums it up. Okay, thank you. Everything, everywhere, all at once. I don't know if anybody's seen that film, but it kind of encompasses it. Okay. In linear and circular time, all at the same time. Linear and circular time, all at the same time. Yes, thank you. Ted, it's Jason. Uh, I don't have a movie recommendation, uh, but uh, I guess a podcast recommendation. Uh, I just listened to an, I guess, somewhat older one by Malcolm Gladwell, which is seems to be speaking directly to your experience working in law. Um, he, he breaks, I don't know if you've heard it, but he breaks down that there's tortoises and hares in, I guess, in a lot of work, but it sounds like the work that you were doing was like required being a hare. Mm -hmm. Steady work. Yet the LSAT is set up for hair for, um, Excuse me, you were you were being a tortoise. Those are so simple and I mixed them up. Uh, you were being a tortoise and the LSAT is set up for being a hare. Um, and you talk about this act of violence to yourself and how you made yourself work sometimes. Um, just, it just brings to mind, like, be curious, your experience taking the LSAT and just this idea of so many systems set up that kind of apply violence trying to f like exert exert influence for people to be meet, performing a certain way when we have such a range of abilities and ways of working. Yeah, interesting thing. If you're in a profession which is kind of requiring you to do several things at once all the time, uh, what what do you do? Do you stay in that profession? Do you try to find ways to make it more humane. Um, I chose not to practice law. I, I chose to do this uh, kind of research job or writing job instead. So I was able to bring a lot of the tortoise practice into it and that worked for me. But yeah, real interesting question. We could talk about that all day, kind of right livelihood and what happens when your job is seeming to require things that uh, Aren't so aren't so good for your practice. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that comment. So okay. Maybe we'll stop there as soon as we hear from Diana. Hi everybody, thank you so much for that talk. <coughs> um one thing that I it came to my mind as you were talking is that time is the vessel upon which we transform and if you see a person every day you don't notice changes in them but if you stop seeing them for a long time and let's say they're a child when you see them again you notice that they're bigger mm -hmm. 
or you notice that, you know, they're older. And um, it's this idea that you're appreciating where you are right now, being completely present, but at the same time accepting that there could be transformation happening with time and that that's something that we can't control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.